Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have one of my favorite return guests, Eloise Leeson, who is the founder of Olin. She's a content optimization and linguistics consultancy. Before we get into the meat of today's topic, Eloise, what on earth is content optimization and linguistics consultancy? I'm so glad you asked. So content optimization is exactly that. It's taking what you've got and making it so much better. Um, We don't have to always reinvent the wheel when it comes to some of the messaging and the way we talk to our customers and our clients, but there's always room for improvement. And that improvement can be significant when you do it in the right way. Doing it in the right way involves a lot of linguistic strategy and consultancy. And that's where the bulk of my work comes in as a trained linguist is looking at the difference between the use of second person pronoun on your website if you mean to be saying half of the things that you're saying and looking at your language in a really granular way to make it more impactful than ever before. Okay. I mean, I I see a lot of people say one thing on the website and then their sales activity is diametrically opposed. So it feels jarring and it feels like a lie. First of all, how does one identify that essentially you're creating that dissonance between the expectation and the experience? you'll see a breakdown in your sales process. You'll see a breakdown in your sales pipeline and you won't be getting the results that you want. I think that a lot of people look to copy sometimes as a a silver bullet to the the kind of sales question, which is that if the copy is converting on the website and if the, you know, what I'm writing about, what I'm doing is good enough, then the sales will just magically happen by themselves. You have to think of copy as being window dressing on a website. You have to have substance behind it. So if your sales process is diametrically opposed to the copy and the messages that you're putting out there, you're creating an incoherent experience. And when your entire sales process should be based on trust and on an ethical sales process, and you want to forge a real rapport with your customer, you can't have that happen because you're shooting yourself in the foot before you even get started. So you need to look at what are we saying on the website? And what are we saying on our sales calls? And are they the same thing? Because every single comms experience that you have with a customer is an opportunity to create a congruence. You know, you create this reinforcement of message. And if that doesn't happen, then people are left feeling bewildered and they don't want to do business with you because they don't trust you because you've not given them a reason to do so. So this speaks to this whole concept of bias safety and reliability, relevance, consistency, responsiveness. and I think it's far too common that there is a disconnect between marketing and sales. So I think what I'm reading from what you're saying is that part of fixing that problem is creating actual alignment between marketing and sales. Would that be fair? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, we could, if we could make marketing and sales play nicely together in the same room without putting them in one of those massive T-shirts called a We Get On shirt, um, <laughs> that would be ideal. It really would. Fourthly, exactly. Um, you know, just enough room for them to punch each other and then get used to the idea of working closely together. When marketing, when sales thinks that marketing is just there to serve them, you'll have a breakdown. When marketing thinks that sales doesn't know what they're doing because they're botching all the great leads that marketing are bringing through, there's going to be a breakdown. I think one of the core issues is, is that when marketing and sales are siloed from one another, is that you, you don't have that coherence that we just spoke about. You're not building that reliability, that buyer safety. And why would you? You know, one hand is saying one thing, one hand is saying another. And I think the, the frustration there is that the, 
the teams could have such a powerful impact if they worked together, if they realized it's both of them on the same side of the table versus the problem, rather than opposite sides of the table screaming at each other. Well, this also then speaks to another significant problem, which is that there seems to be a pattern that companies think they know what the customer wants, but I see a lack of engagement with the customer to find out what they truly want, how they got there, what the journey was, what their options were, why they picked you, why they stay with you, why they don't buy from you. And there doesn't seem to be anyone really championing the voice of the customer. So talk to me about how you get that kind of ideal environment and what the red flags are that tell you you're screwing it up. So I think that the, I think she says, but I do genuinely think that the business world would be a much better place if you had a a voice of your customer champion inside every business. The great thing is, is that most businesses actually do have that. You just don't realize that you do. There should be someone in every organization whose job and mission it is, is to understand what your customer is saying to you. That, that should, in theory, be your head of sales. But all too often, it's actually... Why not marketing? Why not marketing? Because sales are when you're speaking directly to your customer. And marketing, unless you're doing your research to begin with, which I actually find doesn't happen all too often, will be people that are representing the message of your business. So it's the kind of inward to external rather than drawing the message externally inward. I challenge you on that because I think one of my biggest bugbears is that marketing doesn't speak to the customer. I've I've come across only a handful in 35 years uh, who do. And I think that's a massive waste. I, I think marketers seem to spend far too much of their time trying to capture email addresses and do data analytics instead of actually speaking to people who spend the money. So what needs to change and what's the contract that needs to be established between marketing and sales so that that's no longer the case? So I completely agree with you on that point. When it comes to the voice of the customer, the reason that I say your your sort of head of sales, your VP of sales should be the voice of the customer is because typically if you're selling to a prospect, you're having that conversation with them. You should be gathering that anecdotal feedback. You should be understanding what their needs are as you go through that process, trying to establish that real sense of safety as you spoke about earlier. I completely agree that marketing does not ever do enough research and that there is a huge opportunity missed there. The other issue is that marketing doesn't even leverage the insights that sales can provide because marketing is too concerned with the first part of the process rather than the latter part of the process, which to them is, oh, I'm just going to throw that through the funnel, send it to sales, my job's done. And that's just not true. So when it comes to the research and when it comes to the, the, the that contract, I think sales need to tell marketing what's going on and marketing need to ask sales what's happening. And neither of them seem to do that. Neither of those teams seem to have that integration because they don't see it as something that's cyclical. They see it as a linear process. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues is that we want to be creating repeat customers. We want to be learning from the the best people in the business. We want to be repeating their success. Why are you trying to reinvent the wheel? What you should be doing is going in, asking for insight, gathering the data that you actually have that's concrete and useful, that you've gathered from your sales team, you've gathered from conversations that can then flow back into the marketing process to generate better and more appropriate leads to the sales process. And then you optimize as you go. Okay. So in your role, 
how are you bringing those two organizations together so that they are doing their research, that they are speaking to what the customer's actual needs are rather than the assumed need? I do a lot of putting people in the same room and asking them difficult questions. So I will ask sales to come in on a meeting with marketing and I'll ask product marketing to come in and I'll ask customer service and I'll ask customer success. And I'll say, look, here are some questions that we need to understand about who are your best sales performers. And I'll get marketing to sit there whilst sales are telling us about their, you know, their, their best representatives or their best you know, sales team members. And then I'll ask them, so what is the language that they're using? What are the phrases that they're using on those calls? How are they building rapport and empathy? And by and large, what we see is we create an appreciation and empathy for what sales do in those calls. And marketing is the same. Marketing can then tell us what their successes are and what they do in their research. And sales gets a clearer idea of what's going on. So I think a lot of it is having blinkers on and saying, oh, well, they don't actually do anything that's valuable. But then putting them in the same room, having that conversation, getting them to ask each other questions in an environment that feels relatively neutral is a much better way to get the results that you're looking for. You have to take the charge out of it, if that makes sense. This is interesting because there are conversational analytics tools like Refract and Gong and Chorus where the sales calls are recorded. They're analyzed by the AI to look at things like talk time balance, adjectives, use of second person pronoun, when specific topics like the competition or price are brought up. So it strikes me that one of the first things that anyone should uh, really do if they want to build a sophisticated and customer-centric sales approach is to have that kind of analytics and have marketing listen to actual live sales calls. I think that would solve so many problems, Marcus. Yeah, you put it beautifully. And I think that it will give marketing a greater insight into that sales process as well. It will give you verbal triggers for how do we create empathy with people or what are the words that our target customers are using right now that we didn't have insight into. You can't get better data than that that comes straight from the mouth of your customer. So why aren't you listening to it? It's interesting. Amy Brown founded a company called Authentics, and they are a customer listening AI for in the US health sector. And they listen to something, I, I can't remember the exact amount, but I think it's about a billion hours of unfiltered customer conversation with their salespeople. And they pull together these montages of what customers are saying is good and is bad about the service. And what's really interesting is the impact those audio montages have on the executive team, because this speaks to one of the sources of the problems that we see, because you've alluded to the fact that there is this disconnect between marketing and sales, but there's a huge disconnect very often between the customer and sales because sales is driven by how they are measured and how they keep their job. And that's driven by how the executive team puts them under pressure through their management layer. And that in turn is often driven by their funding and their investors. And as a result, I'm curious how often in the course of your work, you then have to go back to the executive team and say, well, hang on a second. You say you want to make these changes, but the environment in which you're uh, having your salespeople operate is opposed to biosafety. It's opposed to 
acting on the voice of the customer? You know, are, are you having those conversations? We're beginning to have those conversations. It's I don't particularly get too involved in culture as a starting point. My work tends to be around observing what's happening right now and presenting that as a mirror. And I think one of the core issues that we have with exec teams and managerial levels and then the trickle down into your actual sales team on the ground is that no one can see the full picture. And everybody is operating on a very blinkered basis. And they're looking at what they see in a day-to-day basis. They're not looking at it over the long term as a bigger picture. So when my when I come in and do my work, one of the core things I do is speak to each team individually and then present those findings as a, this is what's happening right now from the mouths of your own people, whether you like it or not. I do the same thing with customers. I will go out and I will I will have calls with your best clients, with your worst clients. And I want to find out what it is that's going on and why they've bought from you. Because too often we have these single instances of comprehension that we don't weave together into a bigger picture. And you have to have that to be able to make sense of the whole. Interesting. How often is the customer brought into these conversations? Because what one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is uh, identifying the disconnect in sales training between the people who are the technical commissioners, the people who are the users and the beneficiaries, the executives who own the number and the deliverers of training. And what I've identified is that they are all focused on different ends of the problem. And there is a lack of cohesion, which is why most sales training, frankly, you'd be better spending the money on lottery tickets or going to Vegas and you know, playing blackjack. At least you've got a 42% chance of winning your money back. So I'm really curious how often your work involves speaking directly to customers to get their story in order to be able to arm marketing and sales with the information that they need to have those relevant timely, contextually relevant and timely conversations with other customers and to grow the existing customer base. So I'm grateful to say, and I'm glad to say that a lot of my work does involve that process. It does involve speaking directly with customers. And it depends the scale of the work or the scale of the project. Either it'll be a third party research platform that will go out and will gather the results for us, or I will go out there myself and do it, which is better because I can ask, again, slightly more thorny, difficult follow-up questions. I think the the research is fundamental. Without the research, you can't make things happen. But you have to have a client, you have to have a business that's prepared to make a change on the basis of what they find. They can't take the research and, and the results of that research and the data and then just dismiss it, which I think is one of the fears that I have sometimes when engaging in this work is I have to be really sure that a client is prepared to, to put the money where the mouth is and say, well, actually, we are going to make change on the basis of this. If you're doing the research and doing fuck all with the results, Marcus, there is nothing I can do to help you. Uh, and I, I, I'm cockles of my heart are warm by that because that's where people um, in executive positions need to take ownership and responsibility. I did come across a case. Karen Manger was talking about someone she was helping, where they'd done the research, they'd spoken to the customer, and the CEO had placed a bet on a particular product launch, and it was very clear from the research that none of their customers wanted it. And I quote, I'm making a captain's call. We're going ahead with it anyway. So 400 million later. And this is one of the really interesting challenges because I think what I see happen very often is people make assumptions. They then remain attached to them and their ego will not allow them to let go. 
So the role I see for uh, third parties like you and I is to hold up the ugly mirror and to challenge. But yet, in order to do that, you need to be ready to be fired. And this is where I have a real bee in my bonnet about the sales training industry. But I I think for a lot of third parties, whether it's influencer marketing and all this other stuff, they don't challenge the executives because they're worried about losing the contract. So this then speaks to that whole piece around the integrity of third parties who are willing to stand up and say, you're making a mistake. And if you do that, these are the likely consequences and you can fire me by all means. But when it goes wrong, it's going to cost you a lot of money. It's going to lose you customers. And you touched on the issue of retention. I'm really interested in how often retention is the main driver as opposed to the brute force, highly expensive, highly inefficient emphasis on winning cold new business. Retention is is a massive topic. I think that retention comes down to a number of different things. It comes down to what you're selling and if what you're selling is actually making a difference to your customer or if your service is making a difference to your customer in the short and the long term. And I think that you're quite right in saying that too many sales processes fixate on the short term, on the capture, on the win. You were addicted to the win, we're addicted to the hunt. But actually the retention and nurturing of that customer through the you know, the years, months, years, decades potentially of working with them is just not considered. And we we all love to talk about the idea of retention. I think very few people are prepared to go in and understand that it's a long game and you might not see benefits immediately. The other thing is to, to figure out if what you're selling is sticky enough and making enough of a difference for your customer to want to keep it around. You can't expect someone to sign off a couple of hundred thousand every year on a nice to have. You know, you have to understand who you're selling to and why it is that your product or your service or the value that you add is critical for them. And then you have to keep asking them if what you're doing is still serving that need because needs are going to change. And we don't bake that into the sales process itself. And to me, the sales process is a process because it should never stop. You should never stop trying to win and look after that customer because the minute you do, you've taken them for granted and you've turned them into a transaction. And I can't think of a faster way to kill a cell than doing that, honestly. Again, this is music to my ears because a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is around developing a really powerful process for building and growing strategic alliances. And I want to explore in a moment the use of copy to attract the right kind of partners. And the reason I say this is that if you imagine a hub and spoke with the vendor in the middle, And around the outside, there are prospects. Some are hot. Those are your existing customers. Some are warm or lukewarm, and those are referrals. But the rest are cold. And where the majority of marketing and sales emphasis and spend and effort goes is on trying to drive that cold market. To my mind, that's a dumb approach because you've got two much better alternatives and one that seductively looks like uh, another good approach, but actually is very expensive. So let's deal with the expensive. If you imagine quadrants, and on the bottom left hand, you've got a red box, and that's brute force and expensive. That's trying to grow your business by growing your cold market. And the traditional model for that is 
double your headcount, double your sales, double your spend on marketing, double your sales, double your dial rate, double your pipeline. But that's working the cold market. It's very expensive. And when you look at the actual statistics on um, the amount of effort that goes into that, you could be having up to 250 touches to get one first meeting with uh, emails back and forth, voicemails, uh, dial attempts, all that kind of stuff. And when you get to, when you uh, extrapolate that out to the number of touches required to get one second meeting, which means that you turned up, you were relevant and valuable enough to be invited back, that's 3,240 touch attempts, which is massively ineffective. Then you have trying to scale, and uh, a lot of organizations quite sensibly go through a channel. So they go through partners, but they're still focused on the cold market. And that's expensive. And what tends to happen is you recruit a land army of partners, and 2 to 4% of them will generate 40 to 60% of your revenue. And the other 96 to 98% will generate the rest of your revenue. But that's incredibly cost ineffective. The smart bit when it comes to grow is looking at the ecosystem, and this is the top 2% of sellers who see a marketplace in their larger accounts. There's organic growth, there's supply chain, there's joint ventures, there's alliances, there's family tree, there's alumni, there's customers, customer. And that way you can grow and you can maximize wallet share. But the really smart and that this allows you to scale at speed, is if we go back to that hub and spoke model, if you're in the middle and you find the right strategic alliance partners, all your cold prospects are hot to those partners. So now what you're doing is you're selling hot into your what would originally be your cold market by working and playing nicely with partners and collaborating with them and vice versa. So I'm really interested in your thoughts around using copy to attract the right strategic alliances. I think understanding the value you can offer that strategic alliance is critical first. Ultimately, you have to be focused on the other party. And I think that that's one of the the core issues that I see with copy, Marcus, is that the copy is always very, very self-focused. You know, go to any number of websites, you'll see I, we, me, our. And it will be repeated and repeated and repeated. And that, to me, says immediately, you're not interested in a strategic alliance because you're not thinking about anybody else. And I think that when it comes to understanding who could be of great benefit to you, you need to go out and do the research, understand what those people are saying. And then you can mirror that in your own language. You have to be switched on enough to what it is that other people are looking for, whether that's a customer, whether that's a strategic alliance, whether it's you know someone you want to bring into the team, for example, if you're hiring. You have to understand enough about what someone else needs to be able to represent that accurately and appropriately in your copy, which means that you have to fundamentally pull your head out of your backside and think about someone else. And I think that when it comes to copy, it's too easy to say, oh, well, these are our key messages and these are the values that we need to add. If those aren't anchored in other people and their needs and how you meet them, you're not going to come out with anything that's going to be productive in the long run. Very interesting. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So if we then look at, you, you, you touched on something earlier in terms of using a third party. I know you and I both work with Alex Mosco at 9mm PR. 
And uh, he's got a beautiful model, this uh, story sweet spot, where he goes out and interviews customers and making them the hero of the story. And it's an entire model based around what got you to the point where you were considering a change. What alternatives were you considering to us? Why did you work with us in the first place? What was it that uh, caused you to buy from us rather than someone else? What was that experience like? What surprised you? What kind of results have you had? Why do you continue working with us? What would cause you to stop working with us? And you touched on a really important point that you need to keep adapting. And I see so often vendor organizations stick with the ideal customer profile and continue to sell what they've always sold rather than evolving uh, in tandem with or even ahead of their customer. Bob Mester always says that people don't buy your product outright. They rent it for as long as it continues to deliver the outcome they need at that moment. So again, I'm really curious about that. Uh, the conversations that you're having with your clients and the conversations that people like Alex are having with uh, clients to make sure that they're, uh, they stay aware of that and they become the champions of the voice of the customer. Mm-hmm. That looks like continuous, innate, powerful curiosity. And I think that what Alex does so brilliantly is that he, when he asks questions of his clients' clients, is first of all, he's obviously going to them directly to understand and evidence what it is that his, the value that his customers add. And I think that's profoundly powerful because it links the benefit to something emotionally. People do not buy based on logic. We have known this. We've known this for a long time. People people choose to buy emotionally, then they justify it logically. So you need to forge that emotional connection and continue to forge that emotional connection in everything that you do. That's why customer profiles are a really great idea in principle. But you take two men who are 70, and I I thought, so Louis Grenier is a a marketing um, consultant and educator who I admire massively, um, and he's divisive, so you'll probably love him. But Louis Grenier um, has a great rant about your ICP in that if we were to take Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne, they're both family men in their 70s, white British occupying certain bits of England. Now, that is an ICP. I cannot imagine two more different people who would fit the same persona, shall we say. And this is why an ICP is a great idea fundamentally in that it gets you thinking about the customer, but none of us are ICPs. We are all profoundly individual people, which is is both a good and a bad thing. If you're of the right mindset, it gives you an opportunity to create such a nuanced sales experience by being interested in the other person that you might win them for life as long as you keep encouraging them and, and working with them to continue to rent your services, or you try and fit everyone into the same box and then wonder why no one wants to talk to you. Well, this then speaks to something else that um, I'm deeply involved in at the moment. I work with a sales enablement AI company called White Rabbit, and their AI is incredibly clever. What it does, it helps you to identify those people who are in your... Well, first of all, it helps you to define who your true ideal customer profile is today. And people often forget Uh, or don't realize that the ICP changes subtly over time. And uh, they had a a client who for four years had been selling into their old ICP. When they ran the ICP through the AI, they realized for the last four years they've been trying to sell to the wrong people, and sales went up 700% in two and a half weeks. 
And that then created another major problem because um, they went in three months uh, from one client a month to 21 clients over three months. And so they had to take on two more people. So if, if you are going to apply technologies like this, you have to plan ahead and make sure your back office and customer success operations are ready to do the delivery. But what's really interesting about this is when you run the prospect list through the ICP, then it gives you a prioritized um, prospect list of people who are ready to speak to sales and people who are likely to speak to sales in the future. And what I'm most excited about is moving away from the short-term transactional reactive um, got to hit the quota this quarter to the whole concept of pipeline nurturing. And this is the really smart part. If you can identify who is likely to be buying in the next three to 18 months, that gives you time to start building relationships and engaging with the multiple decision makers in a buying organization when there is no competition. Because when they move into ready to talk to a salesperson, they're going to be talking to multiple vendors and there's a lot of competition. If you spend your time really working and nurturing the pipeline months or even years in advance. A pal of mine, John Bedwani, he's got a seven-figure business that does nothing but pipeline nurturing two to three years in advance of an enterprise wanting to sell to a company. So by the time they're ready to buy, all of the cast of characters are known on-site. Anyone who's a hostile, you've already identified You've identified everyone's individual pains and so on. And what, what I see with my clients historically who've done really good jobs on pipeline nurturing is they always end up with, within a year, with a pipeline that is brimming, o- overflowing with quality, qualified prospects. And they have choice because when it comes to the end of the quarter, they're not scrabbling around to try and steal from next quarter's quota. Uh, or pipeline to make this quarter's quota, they've got five to 12 prospects lined up for every deal they need. And that means that they end up keeping more of the money because they don't have to try and bribe them with a discount. They don't put people under pressure. And the salespeople um, have choice, which means that if anyone isn't ready to buy, it doesn't make any difference. They've got five others they can go to. So I'm curious, again, how you can use copy as a means of nurturing pipeline. I, oh, that's so good. I love that. Copy as a means of nurturing pipeline. You know, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but you should just listen to your customer and continue to listen to your customer. Um, and when it comes to that pipeline nurturing, what makes me so excited about that is that in two to three years, that is a, that's a genuine relationship that's forged. You can't talk to someone for two to three years and not understand what their problems are and what their pain points are and the language they're using to describe that. Um, I think if you put on a kind of data mining mindset every time you go into a call, if you put on you know your, your curiosity goggles, and pardon the phrase, that was terrible, but when you put on those curiosity goggles and you're genuinely interested in what it is someone has to say and you write it down you can take all of that data and you can run that through a corpus and you can look at here are the words that my customer uses when they're about to buy these are some of the verbal ticks and triggers that they use when they're not sure this is how we navigate their bant objections this is how we understand if now is the right time for them this is how we reassure them and then you look at that and just as much as sales can look at the calls that they have 
um, in with the systems that you described earlier, Marcus, um, and say, well, here are some of the linguistic triggers we can use to encourage people to engage with us. Why don't you replicate that in your email newsletters? Why don't you replicate that in your website copy? Why don't you alter where people come to in terms of the landing pages that they, they arrive at in terms of your campaigns team um, to, to forge a real emotional bond with the copy that you're creating? Because it feels natural and familiar to them anyway. Your copy should be evolving as you go. So when it comes to nurturing that sales pipeline, it's about feeding the results of it back into what you're doing already with that constant growth mindset, which means that you're never going to be stagnant. They're never going to receive weird messages that haven't come from anywhere because you're trying something new and newfangled. You're just focused on building an honest, solid relationship that will benefit both of you in the long run. I understand why people don't do it because of short-term pressure. So this then raises the really interesting question as to the kind of leader who is willing to, to allow and take the risk of maybe not hitting quota for one or two quarters in order to build that rock-solid nurtured pipeline. So in your experience, what are the qualities of those leaders who do take that risk? And what are the conversations they need to have internally? And how can they use copy, for example, to position that strategy in a way that investors will accept it without punishing them? That's a brilliant question. So the qualities of the leader. So first and foremost, I think the leader needs to have that long-term mindset. But above all else, the leader needs really, really clear vision. And that is not just clear vision in the sense of, oh, we've got a vision of where we're going in the future. That's a, what, what's happening right now inside your business. And can you be honest enough with yourself and other people to admit where it isn't going so well? And I think being really clear, being really honest, finding the clarity that's necessary to be able to take the correct actions is fundamental. If you don't have clear insight into what's going on inside your business from whether it's a sales or a comms or a marketing or whatever process at the moment, if you don't have that clear insight, you can't make good choices. End of story. Um, and without that, insight. You can't forge an, a coherent strategy. So being able to be really honest with yourself and with other people and then commit to making change on the back of that, fundamental. You can't do anything else without those two things. So when it comes to the copy, knowing which questions to ask is, is key as well in terms of either onboarding people into that mindset of, well, look, here's what we're going to do. This is what we're going to, these are the actions that we're going to take, being very transparent and very honest about that, um, will gain the trust of the people that you want to serve. Now, those might be your funders, those might be your, you know, your, your um, external board, what, whoever or wherever, whatever that is presenting the clearest picture to them and then explaining the results and the benefits of the longer term approach. Again, you know, you're selling something to them. So you need to sell it emotionally, um, but you also have to do it in a really honest way and in a, with such integrity. So I realize I'm throwing a lot of words around and, and sort of that works out well from an answering perspective, but in action, it's, it's a lot harder to do. So you've got to be really fucking courageous to stand up there and go in with it. So having a long-term mindset um, means that you're not going to be so easily dissuaded. You've got to be resilient um, and you have to be interested in joining up the dots throughout your organization. So it can't just be, oh, I'm going to bring in someone. I'm going to bring in this new um, you know, COO or a CRO. They're going to come in. They're going to fix all these issues we have. Well, that's great. That's lovely. Um, but do you know what they're going to do in the short and the long term? Are you looking at both sides of the coin? 
how does one feed into the other? Um, and then being prepared to kind of accept some of the consequences of that discomfort in the meantime. I think any leader should be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it is is so much easier said than done, Marcus, ultimately. The short-term fixes for copy are making sure that you are always fixated on the other person and the benefit to them, ultimately, but also that what's the benefit of the benefit, which we don't think about enough, I think, in terms of our marketing copy and spiel. What, what do you mean by the benefit of the benefit? So what's the point? So we, we talk about features and benefits all the time, right? So, you know, I have this amazing accounting software that will, you know, give you more time. So what will I do with that time? That's right. when your knowledge and understanding so of the customer, exactly, it's the so what. The, the if then, when. Okay. This is fascinating because I'm seeing so many different threads coming together. And if you do have a courageous leader, and Mark Herbert uh, says that you need to turn up to work every day ready to be fired. (laughs) And I definitely subscribe to that. And your strategy needs to be one that really focuses on not only the long-term interests of the business, but especially the long-term interests of your customers and your people and your partners. Now, that's very sophisticated uh, to be able to do that. Um, And so I think there is an issue, which is that Gary Mitchell always talks about putting the financial cart before the customer horse. And I think that is the root cause of many, many problems. Because if you just focus on the transaction, on hitting the quarterly reporting numbers, then there isn't that infinite mindset. Now, again, many of you will have heard me talk about the difference between a finite game where there is a beginning and an end and you play to win or not to lose. And the objective is to get a larger piece of a shrinking pie, whereas an infinite mindset is really about keeping the game going for longer and making the pie bigger for everybody. And I think part of this is down to the language we use within businesses, which is very he psychology, as Martin Lucas always talks about, versus she psychology. It's very warlike. We talk about campaigns. Uh, and strategy, and all this kind of stuff. But we forget that at the end of the day, it's not businesses that buy, it's human beings. And there isn't enough emphasis. did a round table with um, a bunch of technical buyers of training, and something that they said, which I thought was really insightful and very important, particularly the enablement and procurement people who are strategic procurement, not tactical. What they want is partners. They don't want suppliers. They want partners who challenge. They want partners who bring insight. They want partners who are thinking the long game, who are thinking about the entire business, not just turning up and doing a day or two of entertainment and then buggering off. They want people who are Uh, really bringing the key skills that allow you to develop long-term relationships uh, with customers. Because there's um, uh, an investment fund. There are two investment funds I came across this week, which have given me a little bit of hope. One is called Stage 2 Capital, and another one is called Altos Ventures. And both of them 
focus not on sales growth, but on retention. That's their key metric and their patient capital. And when you're working with strategic procurement, when you're working with strategic sales enablement, they're thinking that long game. And what I'm really curious about is how do we get all these different moving parts within the business together to try and work out the why, the what, and the so what, so that they're all working together? Because one of the things that I see happen far too often is command and control tends to create stovepipes or yeah, fiefdoms, and then you create a culture of blame, abdication of responsibility, justification through excuses. So again, whilst it's not necessarily about copy, but it could well be uh, facilitated by that through internal comms. So let's explore how internal communication can be used as the glue that brings everybody together to work towards common purpose. I love that. The what's really what struck me there as you were speaking, Marcus, was the treating people as human beings. I think that we're too often treating people as human doings. And then when you have this infinite mindset, you know, see the sort of Simon Sinek spiel of, of, of start with your why. Whenever anyone asks me, what's your goal with your business? It's to do the best work for the right people for as long as possible. And that is a long-term strategy. And I think if you can't focus on the long-term to sell successfully, you secretly, something's broken. And if you have to focus on the short term because that's where you're comfortable, it means that you're not prepared to stand up in integrity in the long run. And that means that you fundamentally, whether you've admitted it to yourself or not, you don't trust your value. You don't trust your sales process. And I think that the short term versus the long term and, and depending, that will look different for different companies, I will grant you. I'm not saying that a short-term success strategy of going from one client to 21 in three months is, is a bad thing at all. But if you can only work with clients in the short term because you have to leave after a certain amount of time because you don't trust the results of the work you've done for them, that smacks of, a, of something being broken in, in your system. So how do you tie the threads of culture, of, of copy, of communications, and of purpose together for an organization to succeed, you need to understand why you do what you do. And, and a lot of the work that I do with my clients begins massively with their values. And this is very akin to Alex Mosco, who we spoke about earlier um, and his work, where we look at the, the way that you approach what you do and doing what you do with integrity is crucial. And unless you can get everybody on board on that same page, and that will take time, you will have people working at disparate effects. You will have one group over here thinking this is the right thing to do. You'll have one group over here thinking this is the right thing to do. You'll have a top-down management system that doesn't come in and look at anything that thinks they're above everybody else. And there's a sense of superiority in there that will actually act like a cancer from the inside out and destroy everything. I think when you are all agreed on the same thing and you all know why you're working towards the same thing, there's a brilliant book called Gung Ho, which is um, sort of pseudo written by a chap called Ken Richards. I can link in the show notes. But it is an absolutely brilliant book. And it's about recognizing the value of what you add and your work being worthwhile. And I think a huge amount of sales is not considered to be worthwhile work by people who are outside of sales. And I think that integrating through internal comms and through the appropriate use of language and also checking your language, 
recently did a video about this, about stereotypes, biases, internal narratives and stories. And I know you and I have spoken about this previously that tend to emerge in your language when you're not aware of them. If you are not consciously looking at what you talk about and how you talk about it, it will sabotage you in the future because you're not making a conscious choice about what you want to have happen. So more than anything, internal comms needs to be a conscious choice and decision to be made. Um, and then you need to understand what's the purpose that unites everybody together in that before you can start to create copy that reflects it appropriately. Hmm. Really fascinating. We could talk about this for hours and I've, I've got about another four or five podcasts in mind that we need to cover. Tell me this, what's the one bit of advice you would give to a leader who recognizes the need to create cohesion, but they're up against a, a culture which is, uh, has historically been command and control, pitting department against department, and there is blame and excuses as the main default setting. How can they use copy to start asking the right questions and bring those desperate groups together and align them? So my advice would be buy in a couple of kegs, when it's socially appropriate and everybody's safe and vaccinated, stick everybody in the same room and have a really honest conversation. Have a proper, pardon the phrase, have a proper balls out, honest conversation about where things are going, where the breakdown is. Let people air their grievances. Um, ask them what's going well. Don't just focus on the negative. And then take all of those findings and those insights and stick them in a document and a report where someone can, everyone can read it. Email it out to your whole team. Say, look, we had, uh, you know, not to use that kind of violent language, we had, a we had a conference of war, we had a conference about the state of play, we had a town hall, we had a discussion, we had an open forum about what is happening right now and what are our frustrations. And don't be shy of the vulnerability of saying, hey, sales, do you hate marketing? Cool, let's ask why. Um, and vice versa, marketing, what is it that sales does that pisses you off? You know, where are the fundamental disconnects? What are the opinions that you have that you are letting fester in your silos? Smash the silos however you can and report the findings of that in some kind of document that people can read about and then refer to it again in the future. Be honest about the state of play because unless you get everybody on that same page as a leader, unless you, you form that clarity and create a new starting point for everybody and put that into copy and into black and white where people can go and read and check you on it and be willing to be checked on it, that's how you have to start moving forward and improving that culture because that forges accountability. And when accountability comes from the top down, it sets an example for everybody else. And too often, I think leaders are not held accountable for some of the things that they are responsible for. And I know you're busy. I know you've got a board to answer to. I know you've got a C-suite full of people who are demanding your time. But there are people on the ground who have got gold dust in terms of information, data, and insights that you could be using to benefit your company in the long term. And if you ignore it, you are a fool. And that, unfortunately, would be a waste of fool's gold. <laughs> Excellent. Eloise, thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? You can find me on LinkedIn if you search Eloise Leeson Olim. Or you can find me at olimcoms.com. That's O-L-I-M-C-O-M-M-S.com. My email and contact details are there as well. And I would love to hear from you. And why Olim? Oh, <laughs> uh, so Olim is a Latin phrase meaning once or once upon a time. 
typically used to start stories and the kind of fundamental belief is that everybody does have something that's very worth listening to. But actually, my favourite fact about Olim is it was used in the Roman Praetorium when the senators were about to call everyone to order. Olim was their way of saying, shut up, we're about to say something really fucking important. So that's what I like to think about with my clients. We're about to say something really important, so you had better pay attention. Excellent. Eloise, thank you. Pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, and I'd be amazed if you haven't, go back, listen to it again, take notes. Tag somebody who is in a leadership role, either a CEO, a COO, or a head of sales and marketing, and uh, make sure that they have a listen. If you could like, comment, and share, then please do so. And if you're feeling the urge, uh, I would be incredibly grateful if you can give an honest review of the podcast on either Apple or Google or any other platform that has reviews. If you want to get a hold of me, then Marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.